What can you learn from someone whose famous husband built a brand with 20,000 employees and whose father also employed 20,000 with yet another world famous household brand? Buckle on up, you are about to find out. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest on The Motivation Show is a graduate of Harvard, a public speaker, and co-wrote a book with none other than my buddy, Mark Victor Hansen, my old friend, and the great chicken soup for the soul author called How to Be Up in Down Times. And boy, are we in down times and we need to be up, really. She is also the author of How to Make Your Family Business Last. And why is she an authority on this? Easy. Her father, Ernest Henderson, co-founded and was the president of the Sheridan Hotel chain. And if that wasn't impressive enough, her late great husband was none other than Frank Purdue, CEO of Purdue Farms and the second generation in the poultry company that today operates in many, many countries. I want to welcome to the Motivation Show, Mitzi Purdue. Well, Eli, I'm just enchanted to be here and I love your topic. To me, motivation is, it's just so important. Well, I have to tell you, you've already inspired me just in our pre-talk before. Uh, we both have a lot in common. We both actually, even though we're out here in the public eye, we were both pretty shy when we were younger, weren't we, Mitzi? There was a period in my life where I was so shy that it was genuinely hard for me to use the telephone. And to enter a room of strangers, I, I could hardly do it. And yet now I, d I do talks in front of thousands of people and I'm happy. So I think I'm living, breathing proof that you can transcend your shyness. Well, you know, you and I talked a little bit about some of the great motivational speakers of all time and some of the challenges they had, like Tony Robbins lived in this 600 square foot flat. He was overweight. Uh, he was struggling. Uh, Les Brown lived in Overtown, I believe, Miami, uh, a tough ghetto. And uh, he uh, was labeled educably retarded. So how can an educably retarded guy go on to be one of the greatest motivational speakers of all time? You and I suffered from what may honestly be at the end of the day, one of the toughest handicaps of all, and that's called shyness. Because how does a shy person who wants to sit in the back of the room like I did in a classroom, we didn't want the teacher to call on him, how can I possibly want to be on a podcast? Wouldn't I want to shrink? But if you're a fan of motivation like you and I are, and you've, both of us have read a ton of self-help books, you realize that maybe there's another side of us. Maybe there's this other side waiting to come out of the, of the closet. And, you know, there's an extroverted side, uh, even though we still got the introverted side. Is that kind of how you are? You got that introverted side and that extroverted side? 
Well, I would say that the extroverted side has pretty much overcome the introverted side, but I'll tell you how shy I was and probably the thing that helped me get over it. I remember I was, I believe I was 38, and I had never had any job that required interacting with loads of people. And at the period of my life that I'm describing right now, I was a rice farmer, and rice as in the food that people eat with chopsticks. Wow. So in, in Northern California, I grew rice, and you didn't have to interact with a whole lot of people to do that. However, I realized that, that my shyness was, how about blighting my life? And it came to a head when I belonged to a small church in Davis, California. I think the entire congregation was 60 people, and I knew every one of them well. And there came a day when I had to give an announcement in church, and it was like 60 seconds long. Well, it ruined my whole week that I had to stand up in front of people and talk. And I decided, and I am coming to the point of this story, that I had to do something about it. So I took a public speaking course. And... It changed my life. I, I realized that you could stand up in front of people and not die. And you know, uh, Mitzi, the number one fear in life is not a fear of death. You know that, right? You know what the number one fear is, right? Because I've been through it. Right. And for two shy people like us, at least we were at one point, that was a real fear. <laughs> that was I, I would say that it was... I don't like snakes. This was so much worse than snakes. And oh, I mean, a, a quick death would have been a release compared right. to my, my terror of public speaking. But for anybody who is afraid of public speaking, I recommend taking a course where you can make your mistakes in front of people who are like friendly and they know you're learning. And you can experience that, hey, public speaking and communicating what you really care about. Why, that's nice. Yeah. And, you know, that's a message of hope. And we need these messages of hope. We need people to realize that whatever they were born with, whoever they were born to, or whatever their situation was, these things are changeable. Uh, and you got to apply yourself. And that's why we do this show. We, we try to inspire, motivate people, make people realize that God don't make junk, right, Mitzi? God don't make junk. <laughs> he don't. And our DNA is pretty good because we have the DNA of the Almighty there without sounding too religious. But at the end of the day, you know, we all have gifts and we just got to figure out a way to pull it out of ourselves. Well, I kind of feel almost that in my case, my, my biggest fear became the thing I love the most. I really genuinely love communicating with people if I've got something that might benefit them. So I think I'm going to stick with that statement that my, my greatest deficit has become the thing that I enjoy most today. Well, what's fascinating is you're a lot like your great late husband, Frank Perdue. And, you know, what I always remembered about the Frank Perdue chicken commercials, he was, to me, an American TV icon. And I always admired him because I could relate to him. You know, he looked like and therefore he seemed like you know, just a regular guy like me from Queens, you know. Just like I, was waiting for you to say, I was waiting for you to say that he looked like and talked and, and squawked like a chicken because no. he would say that about himself. Well, and, and that did self-deprecation made him charming. And, and that's what you always felt about Frank Perdue. Uh, he just looked like everybody's friendly uncle. And so that made him very likable. It made him very believable. And I can remember, of course, you know, maybe millennials won't remember this, but us uh, little older folk <laughs> can remember one of the great you know, TV slogans of all time. It takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. <laughs> you know, it's funny that, that 
I mean, that slogan began, uh, to the best of my knowledge, somewhere around 1968, and yet people still remember it. Oh, my it's God. Are you kidding me? Not kidding you. Yeah, that, that slogan is one of the great uh, slogans of TV commercial history. Uh, so he looked like anybody's friendly neighbor, and he was very relatable. You know, he wasn't trying to be slick. You know, he wasn't he didn't put a ton of makeup on him. He just went out there, and he said he had this chicken company. But he didn't look like the toughest guy in the world, but I would think he would have to be super tough to run a wildly successful business of that magnitude. So Mitzi, how tough was Frank and in what ways was he tough and what can we learn from Frank's toughness? All right. To, I, re, I interviewed 143 people for a book I wrote, Tough Man, Tender Chicken, Business and Life Lessons from Frank Perdue. And he was extremely demanding. Uh, he wanted to pull out of you the absolute best that you had, and he wasn't going to be satisfied with less. But he tempered all of that with just extraordinary people skills. And it's easier for me to talk about the people skills than to talk about the toughness, partly because I never personally experienced any of it. I know that it was there because in interviewing people, they told me about it. But he was the easiest to get along with person in the world at home. I mean, he's just he was easygoing. So if, do I have permission to switch the, my answer to the question just a little bit, where the focus isn't on the toughness, which I don't know firsthand, but I know an awful lot about how he tempered the toughness. Because among the things that he would do is, and this is something that I recommend to everybody because it's, it's practical. He was very good at listening. I, I used to- Sorry, we have two ears, right, Mitzi, and one <laughs> mouth? Right? Yeah, but if he was listening to you, it was as if you were the only person in his world. I mean, he just played total attention. And I used mm -hmm. to notice that in a typical conversation, he'd be talking 10% of the time and listening 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. And first of all, that makes you feel good to have, have somebody important really paying attention to you, or even somebody unimportant. I mean, it doesn't matter. When somebody pays attention to you, it's, it's meaningful. But the other part of that is he was learning a lot. So I, I recommend to everybody what I saw Frank do, the, the 10%, 90% almost rule. And then other things that he did, he was awfully good at learning names. And I used to get to follow him or accompany him in some of the plant visits of which there were hundreds and hundreds of, of visits. And I'd be astonished there could be a plant with a thousand people and the number of names that he knew because would walk through and there are people working on the line and he'd introduce me to them. Uh, you know, Mitzi, this is Delcy. Her son just got into college or this is Tony. He's had 30 years without a sick day. And you know, he knew the names of people and he knew things about them and something else that I watched him do. Oh, and this is so far from your question about about toughness. No, no I'm, I'm loving this because, you know, someone's name is the sweetest word in the English language to them. So I'm loving this. Go right ahead. Okay. Well, something else that I, that I personally witnessed infallibly, I mean, he always did this. We're in a plant visit and he's talking with the people that, that were walking by and he's knowing who they are and knowing things about them. But his attitude was never, I'm the great, big, important boss. I'm the person whose name appears in your paycheck. No. He would act with them in, as a complete egalitarian. It's as if we're all members of this team 
and I deeply value what you do and your role in this team. Mm, wow. And yeah, you know, what 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 a great kind of motivational thing for somebody to know that the big boss really cares about you. And then there's something else that that I could imagine that that not many heads of Fortune 500 sized companies would do. We had a program for 17 years from the time we married until his passing. The goal was to invite every single person who worked for the company to have dinner in our home. Wow. And it would be a hundred at a time. And typically it would be three times a month would have a hundred people. And you know, what, what a great way of making people feel important to, you know, you're, you're a trucker, you're a sanitation worker, you're an accountant, whoever you get invited to the big boss's home and serve dinner. And then one other, well, there's several parts to this story, but one part that I particularly cherish, he would wait on his employees. There would be a buffet line and he'd stand behind it and serve his employees. Wow. Wow. That is so humble. That is, that is like unbelievable. What a lesson. Okay. Then other things that he'd do at these dinner parties. And, you know, I had a hand in them because coming from the hospitality industry, the Sheraton hotels, um, you know, my, the way I look at the world is hospitality solves everything. And yeah. I know it doesn't really, but I look at it that way. So would have, would have as our guests, people who, you know, administrative assistants, just everybody. And at the end of the evening, at, during the evening, he'd talk with everybody. And at the end of the evening, he'd stand up there and tell them what was going on in the company. You know, that we have this terrible problem or this thing just fell right or economically, this is what the banks are telling us. You know, he would give them real insight as transparent as could be of how the company was doing. And you know, imagine that you're, I don't know, a factory worker and here's the big boss talking to you about what's going on. And then he'd take questions. And then at the end of the evening, he'd tell them, it would be different words each time, but it would boil down to, I know the company wouldn't be what it is today without you. Thank you. Is that not cool? Well, not only is it cool, Mitzi, but one of the great lessons I learned as an owner, an entrepreneur, and as an employee, I've done them all, is that you would rather get praised by your boss and made feel good by your boss often more than even getting more money. Because we all crave attention, we all crave recognition, we all wanna be validated. And to be validated by someone who's running a company with 20,000 people is extraordinary. And the fact that that person remembers your name in a sea of other names shows what a CEO, what a human being that person is. And it's more than just a monetary transaction that the business is a second family. And no wonder why he was so successful. Well, I figured, you know, if you'd asked either my father or Frank Perdue, how how did you have this amazing success? And both of them would have given you the same answer. It's the people who I work with. It's they who are responsible for the, the success of the company. But to my mind, that answer, I mean, both of them have given me that answer. So I know that's their answer. But to me, that immediately sparks another question. What did both men do? that called forth such willingness to go the extra mile. And both men were famous for, if you started working for them, you probably worked for them for life. And yeah, both men had this ability. I'd love to share the, the, the counterpart of what I told you about 
entertaining people in our home that Frank and I did? Please. Thank you. Gosh, I don't want to be pushy, but I'm itching to share the story. You're hardly pushy. You're, you're delightful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, okay, this is the story of my father, because as a child growing up, it was you know, extremely clear to me that I was living in a very, very successful family. I mean, our summer home had a ballroom that held 200 people. And you know, that's not invisible to a little child, <laughs> that daddy is a success. Also, I was forever asking him, you know, why did you do that? Uh, what was the importance of this or that? And, you know, I would continuously ask him what made Sheraton grow so fast from no employees to 20, well, they didn't have 20,000 until his passing, but, but it was growing rapidly during my childhood. From zero to 20,000. Yeah, at the time of his death. And he had 400 hotels and it was a family owned company or at least a family controlled company. So, you know, I'd be asking him, and he told me something that, again, might be useful to our listeners. And you don't have to have 400 hotels to do this. But I'm going to share with you a story that I think kind of shows how smart he was in, in human relations. When he'd take over a hotel, that he began in the 1930s. And it was at the height of the Great Depression. There was 25% unemployment, which wow. is it's almost unimaginable by today's standards. You know, I think at the worst of, of COVID-19, it was 14%. Well, imagine 25%. Oh, my God. I can't believe anything worse than COVID. Yeah. Well, the Great Depression was. And when he'd take over a hotel, it would typically be a hotel that was, in, well, it was teetering on bankruptcy because nobody could make money in hotels during the Great Depression until my father came along. But, but here's what he did. He'd invite all the employees in the hotel to come to the hotel's ballroom. And there might be 400 people, there might be 800 people. And there they are in the hotel's ballroom. And father knew before he said a word, he, he knew that how about almost every one of them is afraid of losing his or her job. And if you lost your job during a period of 25% unemployment, you weren't gonna get another job. I mean, you just weren't. So they had to be as demoralized and unhappy and scared because it's typical when a new owner comes in of any enterprise, you know, they, they've got their friends that they're going to take care of and give their jobs to. Yeah. You know, their cousins, their uncles, their nephews. Nepotism. Um, well, that, that was even more the rule then than it, than it is now. Well, so Father, knowing that how worried and, and concerned they are you know, for the first time meeting the new owner, he told me the first words out of his mouth were always, I want every one of you to keep your job. Wow. And, then it, and, then, and he did that because he knew that they wouldn't understand or, or process a word that he was going to say until their, their pain point was dealt with. And then the next thing he'd say was, I want you to keep your job because nobody knows your job better than you do. And my job is to give you the resources to show the world just how great you are. And you'll see in a couple of months, this hotel is going to be the best served, the most popular, the most financially sound hotel in the whole city. And we together as a team are going to show the rest of the city that bad as the depression is, things can turn around. We're going to be a shining example. Well, I asked father, how come you promised everybody that they could keep their job? Wouldn't you want them you know, kind of like to earn it in some way? And he said, 
that his approach was inspire, don't require. Give them, he said a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. And he's giving them the vision that they're not making beds or waiting on table or tending bar. No, they're part of a team that's going to be an inspiration to the rest of the city. Wow, that's just an amazing story. And, and it's not the end. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, can I tell you ahead of time that it's a three-part story? We've heard part one. Part two, the next day, the employees would see just, I don't know, cavalcades of, of workers come in who were like decorators or plumbers or electricians to refurbish the hotel. Because if a hotel has been on the verge of, verge of bankruptcy, it's going to you know, have stained carpets and stuff that doesn't work. But father told me the first money that he ever spent on refurbishing a hotel were in the employee areas, the areas that the paying guests would never, ever see. Wow, who would, who would think of that? Father. Yes. Uh, he, he said that the first money would go into things like the employee showers, lockers, mm. dining rooms, mm. things, again, that the paying public wouldn't see. And again, I'm asking him, why would you do that? Wouldn't you want to start making money before you took care of that? And he said, no. The most important thing was to demonstrate that I meant it when I said, I want to give you the resources to show the world just how good you are. You know, Mitzi, I, I really get that. I really do. Because, you know, when I go in a hotel or in a restaurant and I get greeted warmly with enthusiasm, or I go into a corner Dwayne Reed store, you know, a convenience store, um, and the employee greets me well, or a Starbucks, you kind of get the sense that they're being treated very well themselves which is why they can pass that along. So I get that totally. But I think he was, okay, I can't know this, but I'm going to guess if, if you're going to judge a tree by its fruits, father was able to make hotels successful during the Great Depression when nobody else could. And I think that's part of the secret of it. And he also told me, I told you this is a three-part story. Go ahead. All right, here we're now at part can't three. Wait. <laughs> oh, I want to make you wait. Come on. Uh, the, we, 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 we got the drum roll. <laughs> oh, all right. Here it is. Here's, here's part three of the story. So I'm asking him about, you know, going back, circling back to the question of why he promised everybody that they'd keep their jobs. And he told me that getting people to do what you want, in his world, there are three major ways of doing it. And two of them are terrible and one is divine. He, he wouldn't have used the word divine. That's a Mitzi word. But... but th th Two are bad and, and one is great. Mm -hmm. First way, he said, I could have stood up there in front of everybody, you know, the people who are worried about keeping their jobs, and I could have told them, shape up or you're fired. You know, he could have used intimidation. Sure. But he said, what's wrong with intimidation is you can get people to do what you want, but they'll do it grudgingly and they'll do the least possible that they can to get by. So he was utterly against intimidation. He said... Another possibility was bribery. He said, I could have stood up right there in front of them and said, if you do a great job, there's a raise in it for you. There's a bonus in it for you. But he said he didn't like that either because bribery in his world was too transactional. People work for the bribe and then you have to keep upping the ante. Mm, good point, yeah. So he thought bribery basically was just, it didn't belong in his toolkit. So... What, what was the way to, I, I want to put it delicately, but basically to get people to do what you want. And he said the third one, you know, 
uh, intimidation's bad, bribery's bad. What's good is inspiration. Give them, you know, that, that woman who's, who's making beds, she's a maid, but she's not just making beds. Now she's building what's going to be the most popular, financially secure hotel in the city that will inspire everybody else. She's part of a team and she's part of something that's way, 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 way bigger than just making beds. You know better than your mates. If that bed doesn't look immaculate, you're not getting a repeat customer. Exactly. Right on. Exactly. Wow. That's a great three-part story. And there's a lot of deep lessons in that on how to treat people because I would say that more than half of the companies probably do the other two. They probably throw a little intimidation out there, a little bit of, of bribery, and maybe not so good on the third part. Uh, and if we reverse that, what a wonderful business world we'd have <laughs> and happy well, people patronizing I'm, them. Well, I'm a huge fan of the Gallup organization, the polling organization, yep. and they put a, a huge amount of effort into figuring out what makes companies and even countries successful. And one of the ways that they look at this is how engaged are the employees? And the United States actually, it's at least from what I've taken from what I've read, is that there's only one company, country that's better than us as far as employee engagement. We're 30, somewhere around a third of American employees like to come at work to work they, they feel fulfilled, they, they feel the work's important, they feel that they're valued. We're at a third. A good bit of the rest of the country, of the world is like at 10%. Mm. India is at 50%. Wow. So, 50? so I don't, yeah, so I don't know how India gets it so right, but the United States seems to be above almost everybody else. So there are a lot of people in this, in the United States that are that I think are practicing the inspiration and giving people a better vision of themselves and making them feel valued. In fact, one of the things that motivated Frank, as far as I can tell, I'm going to give a quote from a psychiatrist from 120 years ago. I love ago. quotes, please. All right, the man's name was William James, psychiatrist out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the quote, which I invite everybody uh, well, it's hard to memorize something that you hear spoken, but here it is. The deepest principle of human nature, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. Mm, yes. Yes. And so both men were just very good at showing appreciation. And, you know, the, I, I, I mentioned that we had a goal of entertaining every single person who worked for the company, Frank Perdue and I. And... It was me who suggested it to him. We had just come back from our honeymoon. And you know, it really took him aback, my suggestion. I said, Franklin, I think we should entertain everybody who works for the company. And he said, no, there's 16,000 people. You know, that's way too many. And I sort of pretended that I wasn't processing that he had just told me no. And so, <laughs> and so I said, and having them 100 at a time would, would be really great. You know, again, his, his reaction was, no, that's way too many. And then all smiles and happiness, I say, gee, it's August now. I bet we could put this together by the end of September. No, that's way too soon. <laughs> and, but, but as we discussed it further, he began to like the idea. Yeah, you know, he, he, his reaction was, mm, maybe there's something to this. And then finally, I like it. And wow. 
The reason he was hesitant, because Frank Perdue also had a shy, introverted side to him. Mm. And the idea of hundreds of people in his home, you know, every week, that was just so far outside his comfort zone. But what turned him around and made him eager to do it and, and do a spectacular job at it was it was a way of showing appreciation. The deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. Well, having, and this is something, I mean, you might, it's just possible that people in our audience are not employing 20,000 people. But even if you're employing three, give them the dignity and the importance to invite them over for dinner in your home. Mm, Dignity. I'll tell you something, Mitzi, what you just said is a game changer. It's a game changer for people that have been struggling along, trying to wonder why things just aren't working the way they'd like to. What you just said is a game changer. You know, invite them right into your home. Make them feel special, you know. And oh, then I have to, ah, I'm too enthusiastic, forgive me. <laughs> but there's... <laughs> That's good. We're the motivation show. We got to okay. have the enthusiasm. Okay, then th- this, is, uh, this is the ultimate motivation quote. And again, it's from my father. He said, a direct quote, People have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. Yes, yes. Wow. And so part of why he was willing to spend the first money in any, any hotel he ever bought on the areas that the public would never see, it's a way of kind of carrying out and living through the notion people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. Absolutely. I'm, yeah, I mean, if he's completely redoing and redecorating and something... I mean, this is a a minor point, but I've started it, so I'm going to continue. We had a decorator. Her name was Mary Kennedy, and she decorated all the hotels that, so if, at least during the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, if you stayed at a Sheraton Hotel, and they were known for being very gracious and attractive and beautiful, it was under under the guidance of Mary Kennedy. It was Mary Kennedy, the decorator, who would also, you know, the first part that she would pay attention to was the areas that the the paying public would never see. And, you know, to have a, a, a big shot decorator decorating your your employee dining room or your locker or shower or whatever. I mean, what a message that must communicate to people. So again, people live up to or down to your expectations. He showed them by his actions that he was just expecting them to show the world how good they are. Well, I just really love that. You know, I'm reading your book and you have a, a really fascinating story in there about a friend of yours that was inheriting a billion dollars, not exactly a small amount of money. And of course, a lot of people might think they're going to be the happiest person on earth if they have a billion dollars. But that person actually said to you that they would trade it all in to have a family behind them because apparently she didn't have this family. And so, you know, you say that um, your deepest happiness or your deepest misery will come from your intimate relationships. Tell us why these relationships are more important than all the money and all the tea in China. Well, I'll build on the story that you alluded to. And I'm using a fake name, but, but the numbers happen to be correct. Let's call her Carla. Carla and I, the, I remember this was Oh, it might have been 10 years ago. We were in Manhattan and we were on that beautiful street at, at the holiday time, Madison Avenue. 
And Madison Avenue, at least 10 years ago, it's not during COVID-19, but 10 years ago, it was spectacular. Fantasy yeah. land, right? Fantasy land. I yeah. mean, every shop owner just outdoes himself, herself to have, have the, everything just looked beautiful, you know, sparkly, festive, upbeat. And the two of us are, are walking on Madison Avenue and kind of dodging people who are carrying, you know, packages. And it's just a happy time. And it happened to be the day before Thanksgiving. And I told her, Carla, this is just such a happy time of year. And I can't wait to go home to my family, the Purdue family to in Maryland to celebrate Thanksgiving. And then I looked at her and I realized that I'd said something just really bad unintentionally, but I looked at her face and actually she stopped walking and she turned to me and her face kind of looked stricken almost. And so I asked her, Carla, what's wrong? And she said, I wish I had a family to go home to. And I said, but Carla, I know that you've got a brother. Can't you spend Thanksgiving with Joe? And she said, Mitzi, I never told you this, but 10 years ago, he and I had a quarrel over our inheritance. It actually reached the point where we went to court and our father left each of us a billion dollars. And these, this, this is real figures. I mean, as, if I, Carla isn't a real name, but the billion dollars is real. And, and we quarreled all over our inheritance and we haven't spoken since. And I said, but couldn't you put it back together again? And she said, no, we couldn't. Because by the time that your brother lies about you in court, that's a bridge too far. I can't get past that. And he's not going to get past that. And, you know, we're in our late seventies now. That's, that's behind us. But then she said something that's echoed in my mind ever since. She said, my father left me a billion dollars and I'd give every penny of it if I had a home to come, a, a place to go home wow. to for Thanksgiving. Just shows you what's important, huh? Yeah. And so, you know, my advice to anybody who will listen, please listen, everybody. <laughs> my advice to everybody who, who will listen is, with your own attitude and what you teach your kids and grandkids is that relationships are more important than money because when a relationship goes bad, it can harm you and hurt you, maybe even torture you almost every hour of every day. I mean, Carla, the, the damage it did to Carla when her brother put money above the relationship, I, she'll, she'll never recover from that. When she goes to her great reward, I think she'll still feel it, be feeling bad about that. Mitzi, what I want to know is people are struggling in their businesses. Sometimes people think that they need to spend seven days a week to make it work. There's a deep disconnect between trying to make a business successful uh, versus trying to maintain a family life. How did your father and how did your husband somehow fit both in. And, and they did. One of the things that I admired about both men is they were family men to the core. Father did something, again, that I recommend it to everybody. On Sundays, he would have what he called family hour, and it would be after church services and after lunch, but he'd gather the family together, and in one way or another, maybe he'd tell us stories about our grandparents or great-grandparents. Maybe if he was interested in astronomy, I mean, he had different enthusiasms, but he'd tell us 
about the telescope that he had bought and what you could see. Or I remember once, this was in probably 1962, maybe 1965, he got fascinated by computers and he actually bought some model of a computer from back then. And it's not some laptop like we had now. Oh, but it was they just, were giants back then. <laughs> well, it, it was, I mean, he, he got it and was... Actually, that, that left me with an undying fascination with, with computers. Or he'd have something like family band, where each of us would play an instrument. There were five of us and then mother and, and father. But he, Sunday afternoons were dedicated to family and he put so much effort into it. You know, other things that he'd do would be like, he really wanted us to learn languages. And so he'd play records where, of, of foreign languages. He just, he put enormous amount, he, he, he wasn't spending a lot of time with us every day, but Sundays we could count that, that father was. You, you can't mess with the Sundays. Yeah. Gotcha. And then when Frank Perdue and I married, he was 68 at the time, and he was turning over the reins of the company to his son, Jim Perdue, third generation. And by the way, there are now four family members in the company. Yay. But Jim Perdue runs it. But at the point when he was like turning the reins over to Jim, and we had just gotten engaged, he told me what was important to him for the years that remained to him. He said, he wanted to put his energy and effort and love into being closer to his family, his community, and his church. And he did. Wow, wow the big three. Yeah. But, but how cool that a, here a captain of industry could realize the importance of that. But, you know, I don't think he flunked at any of those before age 68 either, because here's some of the things that he would do. And again, it's something that anybody could copy. When I met him, he had had four children and 12 grandchildren. He used to write every one of them on their birthdays, a page and a half or two page letter, just you know, expressing his love for them, you know, showing them that he knew you know, how they were doing in college or you know, whatever was going on in their lives. You know, you, know, you know what they do today, Mitzi? What do they do? People basically will just send you a note on Facebook, say happy birthday, with a little emoji, and that's it. So what a different world and what a difference what, what he was doing. So please tell us more. Uh, one of the biggest things that he did, and again, this is something that's available to anybody. When he was roughly in his 80s, and he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's, which is fatal, and he bore that with just extraordinary grace and courage, by the way. But you know, he, knew, he knew that his time on earth was limited and he wanted to leave his family with the values that had the best chance of having them have happy, productive lives so that at the end of their days, they could think, I led a good life. And so we spent three days, and I recommend this to everybody, we spent three days figuring out what values he felt would lead to a happy, fulfilled life for his children, grandchildren, and those who came after him. We came up with 50. Wow. <laughs> um, however, he felt that no, nobody's going to remember 50. Nobody's going to, that's too many. So we narrowed it down to 10. And that 10, these, we actually had them engraved on a, uh, on a plaque and every family member has it. And when a new member joins the family, we give the family member the plaque. You, you have your own 10 commandments. Pretty close. 
The first one is be honest always. The mm -hmm. next one is be someone that others are justified in trusting. Mm -hmm. Another one is you don't have to be the best, but be the best you can. Mm -hmm. And then one that I particularly treasure is if you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. I love that. Boy, what a is, world we'd have. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Learn from those learn from those who've gone before you, learn from their mistakes and build on, on their successes. Ooh, good one. The amount, I mean, Frank's been gone 15 years. And even today, I was talking with one of his grandsons who says that he keeps a copy of it in where he gets dressed and also in his office. It's, it's just a great thing for, for those who come after you to, to have like these guideposts. That's amazing. You know, you talk in your book that 70% uh, there's a chance of making it to the second generation, right? But you say that... Actually, it's 70% won't make it to won't the make next it. generation. I'm sorry, that's what I meant. They won't make it. And only yeah. 3% won't make it to the third generation. And by time, by, yeah, by what? the time it's fourth generation, which we are, it's one in a thousand. Oh, my God. And so you have to have some deep traditions, right? Which you say is the lifeblood of identity. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Okay. There's, there's been a lot of research done. And the person that I recommend anybody wants to delve further in this, the, the expert as far as I'm concerned, is a woman out of Emory, Emory University in Atlanta. Her name's Robin Fivish. And she studies what makes for a high-functioning family. And she says the biggest thing that, that correlates with being high-functioning is knowing the family stories. And by high-functioning, that means the kids, they aren't truant in, in school. They, maybe they go on to higher education. They don't get in trouble with the law. They don't do drugs. They enjoy being with each other. And one of the ways to have family members know their family stories, because these are... The family stories are, to my mind, like they're little computer programs. They're like software telling you how to behave and how to respond to things. So how do you, how do you get the family to know the family stories? And the answer is spend time together. And she says that there's a tremendous correlation between families who have five or more meals together in the course of a week. Or maybe you go on vacations together, or but one way or another, where you just consciously interact. And by the way, I'm pretty sure that means all screens are off. <laughs> Almost impossible, right? <laughs> oh, but you've got to do it. Got to do it, right? If you want to yeah. make it happen. I'm thinking of, of, a, of a story of, of a person that I was talking with just a couple of days ago. And he has two kids. And for a very special treat, maybe it was Father's Day. I don't know what the occasion was. But he and his two sons, who are like in their young teens, went out to a super expensive restaurant. And the, you know, the little boys, they knew that this is a real treat that not everybody gets to go to this special place, like it's a once in a year thing for them. And they're just utterly enjoying you know, the amazing service, the foods that they don't usually get to eat. It's a real treat until they look over at a table right next to them and there's another father and two sons and they're all looking at their screens instead of talking with each other. And the two sons you know, tell the father, thank heaven that we can talk with each other rather than look at 
having to look at their screens. Great story. You know, you have been an absolute pleasure today. You have taught me a lot. Oh, uh, yay. Certainly reminded me of what's really important. You know, so we all get sidetracked and sometimes we spend so much time hammering away at trying to make a living that we forget that we have to make relationships and we have to set aside important time that you can't tamper with. You can't tamper with the time. You have to put away the devices and you have to continue to build the core and the essence, which is, you know, our relationships, our families. Uh, that's just so important. And I want to thank you for sharing that. Uh, how can people get in touch with you and learn more from what you're doing, putting out in this world? Well, I would love it if they'd, if they'd go to my website. It's Mitzi at MitziPurdue.com. And if you write to me, I will write that's your, back That to sounds you. like an email, right? Mitzi, it's MitziPurdue.com, right? Oh, sorry. The, my email is Mitzi at MitziPurdue.com. Yes. The, uh, the website is MitziPurdue.com. And the one tricky part in all of this is you are going to want to misspell it <laughs> because Purdue is spelled like chicken, not the university. The university is P-U-R and I-N-P-E-R. Ooh, yes. That's, a, that's an interesting difference for sure. Well, I just want to let my listeners know that you got to go and pick up a copy of Mitzi's book, How to Make Your Family Business Last. And you don't have to have a family business to appreciate this book. This book was just filled with life lessons. I just couldn't put the book down. I'm going to read it a second time. Um, uh, and you also put out another great book, How to Be Up and Down Times, which I'll tell you, in the world that we're in right now, <laughs> we all need to figure out a way to continue to stay out because it's real easy to get down. So thank you for sharing all of your wonderful life lessons. You are just a treat to humanity. Oh my gosh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, but, but then I have a theory on what you just said. It Ooh. takes one to know one. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much, Mitzi. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.